It's good to be with you. It's good to be together. It's good to have those that were traveling and back home with us. Some have come back from Memphis safely, and we're so grateful for that. And it is our prayer that was a very blessed uh, uh, engagement and successful in, in that way. But it's good for us to be together tonight as we come to worship God and to study His Word. God has spoken. And He has called us, He has commanded us to. It's not showing up here. Let me get this up here. Oh, well. And we see that in the scriptures. For example, in in 2 Timothy 3, it talks about how God has breathed out his word to us. Paul defends in his first letter to the Corinthians how by the Holy Spirit... He has revealed to us the mind of God, and as a result of that, you know, we have the mind of Christ revealed to us, and for that reason, we're told in Romans 10, 17, that faith, therefore, that saints will come or grow out of the very word of God. But skeptics, unbelievers, seek to undermine and seek to disregard the Bible by attacking it. Attacking its reliability and suggests to us that today the Bible's preservation in the state that we have it cannot be trusted. Now we all understand the idea that we do not have the original books of the Old Testament. We do not have the original epistles of the New Testament. We recognize that. But our modern versions are reconstructions and they are reconstructions that is taken from multiple ancient manuscripts or ancient copies so that we can have today what we see in the form of our various versions which is the same way all ancient literature is preserved you think about some of the famous ancient literature of the past we don't have the originals What we have is reconstructions of those originals based upon copies, manuscripts that have been found. And yet the critic of today, even in our past generations as well as our modern generation critics, are always hurling accusations about how you cannot trust the Bible. You don't need to put your faith in what God says. And so they may say things like, there are thousands and thousands of errors. There are thousands and thousands of variants in the biblical manuscripts. So the Bible is full. It is full of mistakes. And to the ill-equipped believer, to the ungrounded believer... This allurement of the devil's schemes can be quite convincing. It can persuade many who have begun to listen to the lies of the world and do not understand the fact that what they're saying is a deception. It is misleading to us. But that's what the world's going to do. The world is going to uphold and promote lies, deception, because ultimately the prince of this world is guiding and directing the affairs of this world. But we can trust 
And that's the lesson tonight. We can trust that we have accurate copies. Not the originals. But we have accurate copies of the God-inspired written word that was first spoken and written by the Old Testament prophets as well as the New Testament ones too. Tonight's emphasis is going to be on the New Testament preservation. And so that's going to be the evidence I'm presenting tonight. And that is, first of all, the New Testament has more manuscripts for reconstruction than any great classical literature. For many of you, this is simply a review. A reminder of what you have already read before, what you have studied before. And so it's a review for you to kind of bring it back to the forefront of your minds and refresh your memory of how your faith is truly built upon the truth of God's word. For others, it may be more you know, new to you. You haven't studied as much, much as others have. And so it'll serve in that way to give you some overview of the subject. Critics who try to promote the lie and the idea that the New Testament has mistakes, you can't trust it. And they will say things like, well, there is, there is you know, over 200,000 errors in the New Testament. Now, that statement is misleading. It is a very misleading statement because these so-called errors, yes, there are variant readings among the copies, these ancient copies, these manuscripts that we have of various sizes and content. You know, there are variant readings in, in them. And so, yes, you know, there are some very variations between copies but you know what does that you know what does that mean though you know, you know what does it mean that there are these differences in this manuscript's reading and and another you know manuscript and reading of the same text you know what does that mean well most of these variants are so-called errors most of them involve such things as punctuation or misspelling now you think about your own writing and your punctuation <laughs> And your spelling, you know, is it always correct? Yeah. And if you're, let's see, if you're trying to, let's say you're filling out some kind of invitation and you're making, you're writing the same thing over and over in the same invitation, you know, is all of your invitations always perfectly correct? Probably not. You know, we make mistakes when we write things out by hand. We even make things, mistakes when we're typing. And that's why we always claim it's a typo error. And it may have been just one's of my own ignorance that I didn't know how to spell that word correctly. But, you know, we do make mistakes. And so when you think about the so-called 200,000 mistakes of the New Testament, most of those, most of those are going to be involve some kind of punctuation difference or a misspelling, which generally speaking you know, the scholar and the translator, as they compare ancient uh, copies and the various languages, they're going to know if a word's misspelled or not. For example, one misspelled word in one verse, if it's found in 2,000 different copies, is considered to be 2,000 errors. If it's been copied 2,000, if that mistake has been copied 2,000 times, 
then it's, it, it is counted by the critic, by the skeptic, as 2,000 errors. Here are 2,000 errors in the, in the New Testament. And you begin to see how that, that is quite misleading. But it is to their advantage. Their goal is to create doubt, and from that doubt to create unbelief, and in that unbelief, a life of disobedience. There is a biblical scholar by the name of Philip Schaff, not that I expect you to remember this, but in his study and in his conclusions of these various variants and so-called mistakes, he has come to say that only 400 variants actually changed the meaning of a passage. So you take 200,000 and drop down to 400. That's a big difference. Only 400 actually changed the meaning of a passage. Only 50 were of any significance. So of that 400, only 50 50 of it was a significant change in reading. But among all of those, none, absolutely none of them affect a matter of faith or a matter of precept, a command that was not or is not sustained by other undoubted passages of Scripture. So yes, you may have a copy here or a few copies here that have some doubtful reading, some some variants, and you're concerned, well, what's this? And you look at others who are undisputed copies. And in those copies, you see, okay, there's none of these so-called 50 variants, 50 errors, that are considered a significant error, none of those change anything that is a matter of faith or precept from God to us. So, what we're, our aim this evening is simply to try to give us the evidence to answer this question. And that is, do we have accurate copies of the originals? We don't have the originals. All we have are copies and so, do we have accurate copies of the originals? The originals were written in, during the first century, but they were not, you know, we think the New Testament was not all written in the same year. Each of the books and the epistles are written over a period of time, you know, not all the same year. And so, you got before the end of the first century, the New Testament is completed. The book of Revelation being the last divinely God breathed revelation to mankind through the Apostle John. And so that's the question we want to consider. And what it is, you know, we have good reconstruction of the New Testament because we we have several, we got multitude of ancient copies, you know, and out, out of those ancient copies, there are many that were written not long after the original composition. And so you've got a close range going on between the original time period before the end of the first century, when, when, is, when is our first copy that we have, is the question. The closer it is, and this is true with all ancient literature, the closer that copy is to the date of the original, you know, the, you know, from a historical standpoint, the greater it is viewed that is preserved. That is the closer rendering. It's less likely to have a mistake. It's the closer it is than the farther away it, you, know, you get from, from the original text. And so what we know is that there are almost 5,800 handwritten Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. Now, that's not that's a complete New Testament. 
But you're talking about a number of variety of, 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 of manuscripts. And these manuscripts can range from complete uh, books, a complete New Testament, a complete book of the New Testament, a complete page, or even down to a fragment. You take all of that together, together they have, you know, almost 5,800 handwritten Greek ancient copies of some size. And you add to that 20,000 manuscripts in other languages that are in those early centuries. Latin, you know, Syriac, Coptic, Arabic, English was not, you know, an ancient language that they first translated it to. And so all of these languages would have been languages that, that were very you know, you know, close to, to the time period and to the area, as well as languages that were used, you know, for example, Latin in the Roman Empire. And so you know, that, that's impressive work, but it becomes more impressive when we contrast this with ancient literature. And this is where your faith needs to be kind of okay you know, I might, you know, people may mock me, people may try to ridicule me, people may try to plant doubt in me because I don't always have a scholarly answer for them, but you can stand on this, you know, for this is solid ground. And that is when you, com- when you compare the number of manuscripts. Now, those manuscripts range from fragments to entire Bibles, yeah. So, but the total collection is around 5,800. The closest ancient work is by Homer, his writing of the Iliad. They have 1,800. 1,800 is, is the, the total amount they have of the Iliad. Now, that's a lot of manuscripts. The New Testament surpasses that by 4,000. See, that's how strong you need to stand on the fact that you can trust, you know, that we have accurate, you know, documents of the New Testament and we can trust our modern versions that are based upon the Greek, you know, text. Now you go down this list, you have other ancient writers, you've got, uh, you know, one there, the next one is around, you know, around 200 copies, uh, Tacitus, there's 20. The writings of Tacitus, there's 20 manuscripts. You know, writings you know, uh, of Caesar, there's 10. And the rest are less than 10. You know, you have, for example, uh, uh, Pliny there, you know, mentioned in, in Leland's lesson this morning. About, okay, you know, that's a name that in the, in the world of academia, that's, you know, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna learn about that. You're going to hear about him. You know, and he was a, a great writer, you know, in his day. And so when you think about the writings of Pliny and people, and like I said, once again, historians, there are very few historians that will question any of these, you know, ancient literature works. And you, you see, okay, but their work and the reconstruction of their work is not as significant as the New Testament. That's why we can understand that we can rely on the fact that our New Testament has been preserved in a way that we can know we have God's word. We have God's inspired revelation preserved to us as it's been passed on to us throughout time. And so when you're thinking about your reconstruction, not only are they concerned about the number of manuscripts because that's needed to compare, 
Yes, there's going to be, when you think about you know, copying things by hand, there is going to be scribal errors, you know, you know, and, and most of them you know, are made with, uh, just with no ill intent. You know, if, you're thinking, you're scri- if you're writing every day you know, another copy and you're trying to look at the, and compare, you think about how easy it is to misspell a word or even to leave out a word you know, as you go down line, you're just going over and over and over. And so, you know, you can see the difficulty of that, but the more copies you have, the better there is in the sense of preserving it. And so our New Testament is the best preserved ancient work of literature. It is the best preserved ancient work of literature. But that's not all. They don't, they're not, not only are they concerned about the number of manuscripts, they are also concerned about how, how close, what's the time gap between the original composition to the first copy you have. The closer that is, the probability is the, 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 uh, the percentage of mistakes decreases greatly. And so New Testament manuscripts were written soon after, not all of them, but there are many that were written soon after the original compositions, and it far exceeds, it's a whole lot better than ancient literature as well. And here's another graph. There you got New Testament there down the bottom. You, you know, the very, you know, it, it be, you know the, the fact is it begins within less than 100 years. Less than 100 years is the first copied manuscripts we have of various you know, parts of the New Testament. Yeah. Now, and, and then it increases, as, you know, there's more copies, but you start comparing that. The closest, the closest in the standpoint of there, you know, with Homer, you know, the first copy they have of Homer's uh, Iliad is 400 years after the original. And the New Testament exceeds that. And it just goes up from there. You go, you know, you're like, and you're talking about, you know, you know, years there. And so you got you know, up there and you got Herodotus, you know, the first copy of his writing is 1400 years past date of composition. And so when you, you compare both the number of manuscripts that are available that are New Testament, plus the time gap you know, between the original New Testament you know, works and the copies that, are, that we have and increase, so forth, you know, it, it is so much greater. Than, you know, it's a better preserved work of literature. And that's why you can trust you know, your, the biblical documents that we have. The earliest undisputed, the earliest undisputed Manuscript is a fragment, and many of you have seen a picture of this. Is the, this is the John Ryland fragment. He's the one who, who found it. Uh, and, and what it is, you know, you know, the picture of it there is obviously it is blown up you know, to larger size. You see it displayed there in, in, in that glass you know, frame. So it's just a little piece of fragment. It is a portion of John 18. It, it has basically you know, portions of four verses. And what it is, you got two on one side and two on the other side, front and back. But this fragment, they have, you know, they have uh, judged and determined that this fragment dates around A.D. 117 to 138. Now, you're talking about you know, the Gospel of John. It would have been written before the end of the, search, uh, end of the first century. John, his last book he wrote was in the 90s. 
Before he wrote Revelation, he wrote the epistles, and also he wrote the Gospel of John. So sometime between 50 and 100 A.D., Let's kind of just round numbers, kind of give you a a rough estimate. I'm not expecting you to remember all these years. But sometime between 50 and 100, the New Testament was written down. So the first gospels were were being written down. The epistles, their first compositions was being composed. So that's that's the original time frame of this. And the John Ryland fragment dates basically less than 100. Basically, it's, it's about 50 to 70 years from the original, you know, depending what the date the scholar chooses to place the Gospel of John. That's close. There is no ancient literature that even comes close to that kind of, of time gap. To you say, okay, this is, 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 is good information. Now, there are a large n- number you know, there's, uh, of complete manuscripts of New Testament books. And so not necessarily a whole New Testament, but there is largely complete manuscripts of New Testament books. It may not be the whole book, but it will be most of those books that date around A.D. 200. So this is, once again, you're, if, you, if you take 50 you know, as a starting point and 200. And so basically you're talking about you know, less than 150 years. We have, we have manuscripts that are less than 150 years past the date of the original composition of those, of those letters and those books. A famous uh, uh, book of the Bible is called here the Codex Vaticanus. Codex just means book. Uh, Vaticanus because it is, it is in the Vatican. Uh, it dates from the year three, A.D. 325. Okay, and so take 50, you know, and subtract 50 from 325. And so less than 300 years from, you know, the original composition. You know, of course, like the New Testament has, you know, books are not all written in the same year. So that's going to vary per book. But if you take just as a whole, it's less than 300 years from the original composition. And this particular copy contains the majority of the New Testament, not all of it, the majority of the New Testament and a Greek Old Testament, which would have been the Septuagint. So that's what this this copy, this Bible has most of the New Testament, has a Greek Old Testament, and this copy dates around 325 A.D. That still is better than Homer and his work. The last example I give you is another one uh, that is famous, and it's called Codex Sinaiticus, obviously named after you know Mount Sinai in the region where it was found, and basically, and this is a complete New Testament manuscript. This one is a complete New Testament manuscript. It dates around A.D. 340, still less than 300 years. You go through all this, this is tedious stuff, but it just to illustrate that when you think about the ancient literature works that are you know, held up in honor and esteem and studied and is taken that this, this, these works are accurate works, you know, they're true to, to, you know, to their time period. You know, generally speaking, there are no, no critics, no skeptics on a large scale arguing about, oh, you can't trust Homer, and you can't trust Herodias, and you can't trust Caesar's writings. They're not doing that. 
It's only done against God's word. And I think we can understand why, because God's word has to do with people's lives and the changes they need to make. And they don't want to accept that. But the point is, with, with the number of manuscripts that are, that are available and with the number of early manuscripts that are available, scholars are able and have been able to reconstruct the New Testament with great accuracy. You do not have to be swayed or shaken when you've got perhaps unbelievers and skeptics and critics and atheists throwing things at you and you don't have a quick answer for them. It's okay. You don't have to answer them. You can stand firm in your faith knowing that your Bible, your modern version is based upon trustworthy, accurate reconstruction of the New Testament. What you have in your lap in your hand, whatever, you know, whether it's digital or on paper, what you have is a reconstruction, but you can trust that that reconstruction is an English version of what God has spoken. Besides all the manuscript stuff that relate to, to the New Testament copies, there's also just the fact that there are so many quotations, there are so many quotations of New Testament passages, you know, made by early church fathers like Justin Martyr, uh, Clement, Tertullian, others, dating from the second and third century. And so second, second century is 100 and something. Third century, third century is 200 and something. So in those two centuries, there are so many quotations, it is estimated roughly over 36,000 quotations of the New Testament in some form or fashion, that the, nearly the entire New Testament could be reconstructed from their quotations alone. So not only have the manuscripts, the copied manuscripts, the copied ancient copies that are used to study and examine so we can reconstruct, so they can reconstruct it properly. They have also the quotations of the church fathers they, that they also use as a means of comparison. You, you know, which, is, which is an accurate account of what actually was written. And so you have a reliable reconstruction. You can be assured of that. But besides just this kind of tedious textual criticism kind of argument, there's also this point, and that, that is, you know, you have verifiable eyewitness testimony. You need to realize that. You have in your lap verifiable, that's important. You have verifiable eyewitness testimony. That is evidence. Verifiable eyewitness testimony is evidence. And it is the evidence that what is recorded in these well-constructed, you know, versions of the ancient manuscripts of the New Testament, that what is recorded in, the, in your English versions is the truth that's being told. There's a number of questions that historians will use if they, want to, if they have an ancient uh, 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 document and they're examining it and, okay, can, can I trust this historian's uh, 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 story of what's been told? There's a number of questions historians use to try to, you know, test the you know, historicity of a document. Is this, is, is this a good document for me to consider or is it not? 
And so what we see here, they begin by saying, well, do we have eyewitness testimony? Do they claim to be eyewitnesses, what they're telling about? You know, do we have testimony that is from, a, from multiple independent eyewitness sources? So, they, oh, so now do we have eyewitness that we can compare their story? And he says, are the eyewitness trustworthy? Are they people that you can trust? Do we have corroborating evidence from such things as archaeology or other writers? You know, so you think it's like secular writers such as Josephus. Do, is there corroborating evidence that, help, you know, that goes along with this? And then also, does the testimony contain events or details that are embarrassing to the authors? Verifiable eyewitness testimony is what you have. And because you have verifiable eyewitness testimony, the truth is being told. What you have in your Bible is the truth, and the truth is being told you. Nothing is, is, you know, is being told you that's a lie. You know, God's not trying to pull the wool over your eyes here. You know, and nor are the writers of the New Testament trying to pull the wool over your eyes and get you to believe and follow something that is not based and established and held up by truth. And so when you're reading the New Testament writers, whether you're talking about the gospel or even some of the epistles, what we first want to just bring out very quickly is this fact, and that is New Testament writers claimed. You know, it was, there's no question. They claimed to either to be an eyewitness or they claimed to be informed by eyewitness like Luke. You know, Luke was not an eyewitness of Jesus. Now, he is an eyewitness of some other things that come later, but Luke was not an eyewitness of Jesus. But so when Luke writes the book of Luke, he's not claiming to be, but he's claiming to be informing us based upon eyewitness testimony. So think about just a few, a few passages here where the fact the New Testament is, particularly the Gospels and some of those accounts are based upon eyewitness. You know, if you want a, you know, accurate history, you know, it's better if it's an eyewitness. If, if someone has lived through it, you know, you know, their telling the story is going to be that much better. And so the apostles boldly made that claim. There's no question about the apostles of Christ claimed again and again and again and again that they were eyewitnesses of what they tell us about. Acts 2, 32. The apostles in Jerusalem, empowered by the Spirit, Peter and the other apostles are standing before a huge multitude preaching Jesus Christ. In verse 32, Peter says, We all, we all are witnesses of the fact. And that statement is particularly referring to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We, we are all witnesses of the fact. And the fact there is the resurrection. You know, the first question, do we have eyewitness testimony? Yes, we do. We have eyewitness testimony, either by those who actually saw them or by those who are informed by those who saw, him, saw what they're telling you about. You see in 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter uh, 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 1, where, he's, where Peter is writing you know, later on you know, in his life, when he says, we did not follow cleverly devised tales. He says, no, we didn't follow just some tale out here. Some just made up story. No, that's not what we followed. He says, and Peter says, in this epistle, 
He says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Do we have eyewitnesses? And do we have multiple eyewitnesses? Yes. You've got all of them you know, there in, uh, in, in Acts 2 making that claim. You've got Peter re- restating that in, in his p- second letter. And you have John in 1 John chapter 1 when he says, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also. We have verifiable, we have verifiable eyewitness testimony. And so, yes, not only are they eyewitnesses, but the, what they are telling us about could be verified. You know, what the, the story they're telling, the accounts they're giving could be verified at the time that these men recorded their written testimony. They began orally. It was first preached before it was written. But when they're writing it down at the time that they're writing and at the time they're preaching for that matter, you know, people could verify whether or not they were telling the truth. For example, in Acts chapter 26, it's the occasion where you've got Paul in one of his, his defenses and you have Festus who speaks up and basically says, Paul, you're crazy. You are out of your mind. You know, he, he's just been telling the story of his life and how Jesus changed him, turned his life upside down, turned his life around in the right direction. And Festus comes back and basically says, you are out of your mind. You know, all your learning has driven you mad. You're just crazy, Paul. But listen to what Paul says to King Agrippa. See, verifiable eyewitness testimony. He says, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. For the king, that's Agrippa, for the king knows about these matters. The king could verify it. The king knows what I'm talking about. He knows. And I speak to him also with confidence since I'm persuaded that none of these things escape his notice. He may not be there at every event that happened in person. But he's saying, I know, Agrippa, none of this story has not passed your notice. You are fully aware of what's going on. You know all about this. For this has not been done in a corner. Jesus came to be the light of the world. You don't hide a light under a basket. And so we have verifiable. Not only do we have, you know, the idea of just, okay, do we have trustworthy documents, but also these trustworthy documents contain verifiable eyewitness testimony. The writers claim to be, to, to make, you know, take a bold stand on that. And the events they're talking about can be verified by the audiences that were hearing and receiving that. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6, where it talks about the 500, the 500 that saw the resurrected Jesus before he ascended back to heaven, what does Paul say about that 500? In verse 6, he says, most of them, most of them are still alive. Verifiable eyewitness testimony. And then also, there are more than 30 historically confirmed people, more than 30. Start thinking about all the kings, all the Herods, you know, think about all, you know, all the governors, all these 
you know, Jewish and Roman officials, there are more than 30 historical confirmed people that are included in New Testament writings, not just the Gospels, but also in the epistles. More than 30 people that we know are historically verified to be real. The thing is, if they weren't, the credibility would have been devastating. <laughs> if they included names of people and places and of things that was not, you think of people of notoriety, people of power, and if they had said something was, that was not true, their credibility would have been, been destroyed immediately. But that's not the, the case. Because they, were not, they weren't writing lies. They were all concerned about the truth. Not only the truth about Jesus, but the truth about the environment that you know, these events happened. Everything that they wrote about and have written to us in the New Testament is all about so we can know the truth on the matter. And these writers... These writers were willing even to be persecuted, even to die for what they saw and what they testified. Think about that. They had nothing to gain, absolutely nothing to gain if they were telling a story of fiction or even partially fiction. There's nothing to gain for them monetarily. There's nothing to gain for, you know, for them socially, but yet it, it, it would cost them everything. And they were willing to lose it all. And, these all. and these writers all died for the cause of Christ. It wasn't just good old age that finally took them. It was persecution that brought about their death. And so, yes, we have verifiable testimony. And that's evidence that the truth has been told you. You have the truth about what they saw and what they heard and what happened and what was said. Now, as we continue to try to you know, very quickly finish this up here, different details among the eyewitness accounts actually strengthen the case of their argument. You know, the fact that there are differences in the testimony makes the truth that much stronger. And the way to look at it, in a courtroom scene, if there are two witnesses that give exactly same word-for-word -word testimony, the judge will assume collusion has transpired. If, if two witnesses tell exactly the same account word-for-word, -word, a judge will assume collusion, that prior to the testimony, they got together and decided how we're going to say it, what we're going to say word for word. That kind of witness, you know, that kind of testimony is thrown out of a courtroom. What we have in the New Testament, we have complementary details. Details that agree on major facts, and, and yes, there are some variations on minor details, but on major facts, there is agreement. And because there's this agreement on major facts and yes, variations on minor details, it confirms the genuineness of eyewitnesses. Yeah. So take this as an example. There is a Harvard law professor by the name of Simon Greenleaf 
who actually became a believer of Jesus Christ after careful examination of the gospel accounts. He wasn't always a believer in Jesus. But he became a believer that Jesus is who he claimed to be based upon his examination of the gospels as a law professor at Harvard. And he has stated that the gospels would have been received in evidence in any court of justice without the slightest hesitation. The nature of the gospels, the way the testimony is recorded and is given to us, he, sa- he says, that evidence would have, received, would have been received in any court of justice because of the trustworthiness of it. Because of the fact there's verifiable testimonies. There is There is not collusion going on here. All of that comes together to say we have in in four different counts, you think about the ministry of Christ, we have in four different counts, we have verifiable eyewitness testimony. And to end with this point, and that is, and in their writing, they even included things that were quite embarrassing about themselves. If you're concerned about the truth and the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, if that's what you're concerned about, then if the truth involves an unpleasant characteristic about yourself in that story, you include it. If you're concerned about the truth and the whole truth. And the gospels do that. The writers of the New Testament do that. For example, when you're reading in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, we see that the disciples, the very ones that Christ has chosen to, to, to basically take the gospel to the world, you know, they were slow to believe. They were, they were slow to believe. And at times were rebuked for their weakness or their little faith. Other times we see them arguing over who would be the greatest. How immature is that? These are grown men. Grown men vying for position. Yeah, your kids, when they fight over the front seat, that's what it is. They want to be in the front seat with Jesus. Yeah, that's not very commendable of these men. It shows a character flaw. But from the standpoint of verified eyewitnesses, you want to be able to see that, okay, these men are concerned about truth. And the fact that these flaws are included in that shows the integrity of these writers. On one occasion, they slept when Jesus specifically said, stay awake and pray. And they fell asleep on him. One rebuked the Lord himself. Another betrayed him. And on one night, every one of them ran away in fear because Jesus was arrested. Even among Jesus' family, what are we told? Even among Jesus' family, even Mary, the mother of Jesus, is in that, included in that when they come and they believe that, uh, Jesus, you're out of your mind. You're not taking good care of yourself. Remember the story? They come, they're all concerned, you know, and because they felt he, he, he is, he's lost it here. He's not eating, he's not sleeping Mary's in that account. And that's when Jesus says, who's my mother? Who's my brother? Who's my sister? The family themselves did not all believe in Jesus at first. Those are not very commendable 
aspects to the story of Christ. But what they do tell us is the story that we've been given, the story that has been preserved throughout time to this very day, to the 21st century, the story that has been preserved by God's divine revelation and and providential preservation, the story that we have is the truth. It is the truth that we have in our hands that God wants us to read, God wants us to learn, and God wants us to obey. Throughout time, in every generation, there have been mockers. We should not be surprised that there's mockers today. Why should we? Because there were mockers always against God. There, is always, there have always been mockers against God. There have been mockers against God's word. There have been mockers against God's faithful people. That has always been the case. There's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> Mankind hasn't changed in the way that really matters. And that's why they need Jesus. And that's why we need Jesus. And so our generation is no different, really, than the generation of Noah. It's no different than the generation of Paul, as described in Romans 1, 2, and 3. Our generation is no different. But we can rest assured that what we have is the truth, and God has made sure we have it. And if we equip ourselves with that message correctly and properly... We can be fortified in our faith and know that we are on a path that leads to eternal life. The truth has been told so that we will believe it. The question is, do we? Do we believe it? And if you do, are you obeying it? Are you living according to it? Are you preaching it? Are you telling it to others? Because it is God's power. The truth contained in the New Testament is God's power to save you, to save me, and save anyone else that will believe it and obey it. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, we want to encourage you to consider seriously in making that decision, to to make the decision tonight to confess your faith that you believe Jesus to be the Son of God and that He died on the cross and He was raised up on the third day. Not only must we believe in His death, we must believe in His resurrection. We must believe both. It is in that resurrection that there is life hereafter. Whatever your spiritual need may be, we invite you and encourage you. Please come now. Make your wishes known while we stand and sing.